I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi. This is episode 397 for August 20th, 2012. Today we take a look at Nashville's W.O. Smith School. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo, and Rob Grundle, who designed the Jazz or Bust logo. The Jazz or Bust Tour starts again in a couple of weeks, and you can become a supporter of the tour at thejazzsession.com slash tour. You just make a one-time donation there, and there are thank you gifts that come along with every level, starting at 10 bucks. I also need places to stay and places to read poetry and suggestions of people to interview, and you can get me all of those things at jason at thejazzsession.com. Now, in terms of where I'm going, if you're interested in hosting me or suggesting a, a poetry reading site or maybe setting up a house party at your house for some poetry or suggesting someone to interview, I'm starting in Detroit on Labor Day weekend and just heading west from there through all of the Midwest states, the Rocky Mountain states, the Pacific Northwest, down the West Coast, and probably into the Southwest. So if all of that sounds good to you or any of piece of that sounds good to you, contact me at jason at thejazzsession.com. The show could also use some new members. It would really be helpful as the tour continues and as my life continues to have some more recurring members to the show. If you support the tour, that's a one-time thing. If you become a member of the show, it's a recurring thing, either monthly or yearly. You can start at $10 a month or $110 a year, and there are levels that go up from there. So $25 a month or $250 a year or $50 a month, or $500 a year. Now, if you do one of those top two levels, the 50 bucks a month or the $500 a year, you will become a named sponsor of the show, and I'll announce your name twice on every single episode. So that might be a, a cool way to get thanked publicly, and also just to keep the show going. Uh, it really it makes such an enormous difference. One $500 a year sponsorship, thats that amount is almost my entire monthly income from the show, and that's my only income. So it's super, super useful if you uh, kick in that way. I know I talk a lot about money, and particularly about how much money I have on the show. Uh, maybe too much, I don't know. But I'm trying to keep this thing going, and I'm extremely poor. And so it's it's proving to be a challenge to, to keep it going, uh, particularly to keep it going as my job. And if you follow the Tour Diary and my other site, jasoncrane.org, you'll have kept up with some of the other things that have been going on in my life. And you'll know that really I'm, I'm super committed to trying to keep this thing going and, and somewhat struggling to, to make that a reality. So, uh, I would love to have your support at thejazzsession.com slash join. Today's episode is a look at the W.O. Smith School in Nashville, Tennessee. I was turned on to this school uh, by Jeff Coffin and Evan Cobb. Jeff's already been on the show uh, last week or the week before, and Evan will be on the show coming up on August 27th. 
The W.O. Smith School is a place, I mean, it started in a house, as you'll hear, and ended in a multi-million dollar facility just due to the incredible hard work of a very small group of people. And it's an incredible success story. It's a little different than a lot of the things that we talk about on this show. And then it's not specifically jazz related, um, although that does happen there. But I just think part of the reason I left New York and started traveling the country was to find out what was happening in the creative music world everywhere else, all of the places that are not New York City. And I think this is a sterling example of how a community came together and decided that one of the things they needed was music education for young people. And they decided to put their money uh, where their mouths were and make that a reality. So... With no further ado, we'll hear the incredible story of the W.O. Smith School. My guest is Jonah Rabinowitz. He's the executive director of the W.O. Smith School, which is a community music school in Nashville. And from everything I can see and from what I've heard about it, just seems, I mean, just breathtakingly amazing. And so I'm so glad that you're here to, to talk about the school. Thanks for doing it. It's my pleasure. I want to go back because we're sitting in this kind of multi-million dollar place that you raised a ton of money for and it's gorgeous and state-of-the-art and beautiful, but this isn't how the school started by any means. And so I think maybe you could take us back in history a little bit and talk about the origins sure. of the W.O. Smith School. And in fact, um, for most of its history, it's been a fairly modest place. Um, the school was founded in the early 1980s by a group of people who were concerned in Nashville that um, low-income children wouldn't have the ability to partake of music in a place that likes to call itself Music City. I mean, it's a very basic concept. How can you be Music City and not offer music instruction to low-income children? Um, the person who founded our school, the person who it's named for, was William Oscar Smith, um, who had a really interesting and amazing life. And the fact that um, if you listen to the original Coleman Hawkins recording of Body and Soul, you'll find he's the bass player on that recording. Um, he actually did a couple of sessions with monks, did some other things. I mean, he was fairly well known, uh, but ended up um, not only serving during World War II, but as a black man getting his degrees from the University of Iowa, of all places, both masters and PhDs, and, and becoming a, an instructor at Tennessee State University, which is really quite remarkable. Um, so he not only played bass, but he taught himself how to play the viola, and he was a uh, the first African-American in the Nashville Symphony Orchestra. So you have this really unbelievably talented man who came to Nashville and lived here to teach at TSU, play in the symphony, and he said to his friends that he used to meet with, you know, how can we be Music City, and yet there's children in this town who can't afford music instruction, they're not receiving it in the school system the way they should, and we just can't allow this to happen. And there was enough people in this town who actually cared about that that they said, okay, so what do we do about it? So in 1984, they opened up um, a very small school um, with a couple of premises. Number one, it should be the leveling of the playing field for all children. That means non-auditioned, meaning children should be allowed to come here simply because they have a desire, a need, and a want to learn how to play music, which I think is very important because I got music lessons as a child. Whether I was talented or not wasn't really that important. My parents could afford to pay for them. I got music. I think that's as good a reason as any why you need to have a place that's not auditioned to get into. Number two, that in order to make it something that could be sustainable, they couldn't pay teachers because they knew that having to raise teacher salaries on a yearly basis would be so difficult as to probably be impossible, but mostly limit the number of students who would be affected. So they decided to try to do something that's never been done before, which is use all volunteers. And then number three, to make it so that there was a financial commitment from the children and their families to take lessons, but something that the child could decide to do on their own. 
without actually having to ask for money from a parent. So they opened up the school. They made it non-auditioned, made it available to any low-income child. They um, encouraged people to teach, and they had volunteers. And then number three, they made the cost of every lesson 50 cents so that a child could literally at that time return cans to the grocery store and receive a nickel per can. And if they did that every every week, they did 10 of them a week, they'd have enough money to pay for their own lessons. And where was this first school? This first school was actually about a half mile from where we're currently sitting, um, in the middle of a um, low-income neighborhood with lots of public housing, about two blocks from Music Row, which is where all of the music and country music business takes place in Nashville. So you go from a fairly affluent area to a fairly poor area within about a block um, in a very small house that they managed to purchase um, that had four bedrooms and uh, two, a living room, and those rooms were not even converted. They basically just took the furniture out and started teaching in them. Uh, That school opened in 1984 with uh, about uh, 10 teachers, 12 teachers, and 40 kids. And so who at the time, was it W.O. Smith himself who was leading the school, no, so they, to speak? No, they actually looked for somebody who had some experience, and they um, went uh, to f- – uh, to people within the community and said, who do you know that might be able to help us try to organize this? And one of the people principally involved was a gentleman by the name of Del Sawyer. And Del had started the Blair School of Music, which is part of Vanderbilt University. And Blair had a, uh, Blair had just become part of Vanderbilt, and Del was very uh, successful at it, but he wasn't the person to do this because he had never really opened up a community music school. He had a friend in uh, Bowling Green um, who had run other music schools, principally the New Haven Music School, Community Music School, which is one of the largest in the country. His name was Ken Wendrick, and they brought him here as a consultant. And he consulted, and the people here who wanted to open up the school said, you know, this is the right guy to run it. And while he was a college professor, he had a real fascination with the concept. He thought, you know what, I'm getting close to retirement age. This would be a great last chapter in my life. I'm going to move to Nashville and open up this community music school, and that's exactly what happened. And so talk to me uh, about the early impact of the school. Right away, was it something that there was a hunger for once it existed? There always has been. Um, the The truth is, is that um, if you talk to anybody who's been involved with us for a long time, they'll still say we're a hidden gem. And one of the reasons we're a hidden gem is because the more exposed people get to us – the more children and more people want to be involved. So there's never been a time when there hasn't been huge waiting lists of children wanting to take lessons here. I can't say that's always the case for the amount of volunteers. Of of course, you can only serve when you use volunteers. You can only serve as many children as you can find volunteers to work with. And so um, it's it's one of those things where the school has always uh, had the demand outstrip its abilities. Um, In 1994, Um, This little house that they had, the woman who lived right next door passed away, and her family sold the adjoining house to the school um, in which they rehabbed that building to open up to expand operations, almost doubling their size. Um, When I came in 1995 uh, and moved into that building after it had just been rehabbed, we literally programmed out the space and had taken as many students as we could handle within two weeks of opening up the new part of the facility. So expanding the space and almost doubling the size of the school resulted in about a two-week period where we could accept more students, and then we were again finished being able to expand the services to children. So um, this school has always had um, much more demand for services and lessons than we could employ, but um, that's not such a bad thing. It's it, it's nice to be needed and wanted. Um, and again, we have a lot of children in Nashville. Uh, there's about 
40,000 children in the metro school districts here in, in Davidson County who qualify for this program. So we're never going to satisfy a majority of them. And even if only 5% wanted to come and take these kinds of services, that'd be 2,000 kids. Um, we can't serve 2,000 kids right now. So as a percentage, you have to realize there's always going to be many more children who qualify for a program like this than we would be able to take care of. Uh, I want to come back to that and also to how we got into this building that we're in. But will you talk about how you came to be here? Um, unfortunately, my predecessor, Mr. Wendrick, Dr. Wendrick, actually, um, was uh, killed in a car accident. And um, it happened uh, November 1st of 1994. Um, and when a an institution has only had one leader for a very long time. That's not the way you want that kind of transition to take place. You hope to do it in an orderly fashion. So um, the person I mentioned before, Del Sawyer, who was the dean of the Blair School, agreed on an interim basis to come in. And quite frankly, I think there's a lot of people who thought the school would, would close because it was very much driven by Dr. Wendrick's ability not only to attract volunteers and students to make sure that all the educationally, musically, things were going well, but also monetarily, which when you only charge children 50 cents, you obviously have to raise a significant portion of the monies necessary to stay open. Uh, and he was good at that. And so it, it, um, it was something that was very trying. Uh, Del Sawyer, the interim director, um, put on a national search for a replacement. Um, while I had an interest, I did not apply for the job. They, uh, heard about some work I was doing in Atlanta with my school that I ran down there and what I used to do some work with a, a children's homeless shelter and what happened was um, they found a couple of candidates that they really liked and Dell called me up one day and said you know you haven't applied um, why haven't you we think it would be a great idea if you did and I said well, you know I'm not I'm playing in Atlanta I'm still playing performing musician I'm not sure I want to move to Nashville and he said well listen I just need a third candidate to come up and be part of our process because we've only found two that we really want to interview. If you send in your application, I'm going to make you that third candidate. Would you please come? I think it's important for the people in Nashville to have a third choice. And I said, okay. Uh, two months later, I was offered the position, and I've been here ever since. So, you know, sometimes things just happen that way. Yeah. So when you came on board, you were – now the head of an organization that for a while had been in kind of this nebulous space. They'd had one right. guiding about figure. About nine or ten months of, you know, what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can you talk about what, what you had to do? What were some of your first tasks when you hit the ground? Well, you know, um, one of the things that I absolutely love and admire about Nashville is that um, it allows people to come into this community and become part of it and important parts of it fairly quickly. I lived in Atlanta for, for six or seven years, and I used to play with the orchestra there and the ballet and the opera. I mean, I was doing a lot of work. I played all the theater that was going on there. And, you know, amongst a, a select group of fellow musicians, I was probably fairly well-known, but amongst the greater city, certainly not. And even in running one of the bigger music schools there, which is what I did for a day job, um, as all musicians do, we're trying to piece things together, even then was not really afforded any sort of stature within the community. It wasn't of any consequence. Of course, you know, Atlanta's a huge metropolitan area. It's very different from Nashville. I came to Nashville, and really my first thought was, um, you know, I didn't know what to do. Um, I was intrigued because I think the mission of this school to provide that kind of instruction to low-income children is very important. So I, I think I had the um, altruism right, but I wasn't sure of the mechanism. And then the one thing I found out rather quickly was that um, in this community, um, you just need to go talk to people. You need to meet them. You need to tell them why you're there, what you care about. Um, you don't always get the desired result. 
But, you know, when you can be passionate about something, when you show that passion, when what you do reflects that passion, it's amazing how quickly people will accept you. Um, and I was so vastly different from my predecessor. I mean, I think we were probably the totally different kinds of humans. I mean, honestly, I think we had the same passions, but I mean, I don't think in our, in our manner, in our way, I think he was very gentlemanly, quite stately, so very much the older gentleman. And I was sort of young and loud and obnoxious and was willing to basically say whatever I needed to. And I think that was actually a good thing because nobody thought I was trying to step into his shoes. They realized I was trying to create a new pair. And so um, I came in, and the first thing I realized, um, even though I don't think I understood before I got here, is that you know uh, the, the main responsibility for a person like me is to set a great uh, example of what education should be for children. Um, it's not dogmatic. It's, it's wide open, but it also says that you know what we teach and how we teach it really does matter, um, that relationships between volunteers and children are of the utmost importance, and they have a much greater meaning than just learning how to play. Because learning how to play is great, but that relationship with your teacher, regardless if you pay them or not, is extremely important. And that my, my biggest job was to make sure that the, the students had the resources necessary to make it so that they could do whatever they wanted to do with their music. So that means raising money. And so I set about trying to figure out how to get all those three things to sort of meld together so that I could raise enough money, make sure that I was giving good educational direction, and then being somewhat of a visionary for the school so that people could see where I thought we could be versus what we were. And that's, that's how I've spent most of my 17 years here. And I want to uh, encourage folks to, to go online and, and look at this place and also to kick in some of your hard-earned cash. But the, what, it's impossible in audio. That's one, one drawback of this show to express to people just what an incredible facility this is. And so well, I mean, when you got here, this place was in two Very rehabbed houses. houses. Yeah. And now we're in this incredible state-of-the-art facility, which obviously says something about your vision. But there's a... A hell of a lot of work. Or the lack thereof. Yeah, sure yes. yes, also probably something about your sanity. Yes. Uh, but there's an amazing amount of work, obviously, that went into creating this. How did you even decide what this would be, set a budget for it, and then go about actually finding the, the $6 million that it cost well, to build Well, the first thing I decided was that um, one of the problems that – and again, this is all very personal. This is not – I'm lucky to have some people who had shared vision, but this was very personal – one of the things that I, I decided for myself after having lived here for four or five years and, and thinking about how to move a place like this forward was, you know, what what do these low-income children lack? And, you know, people will talk about self-esteem and self-confidence. And, you know, what it really comes down to is the fact that they don't look at the world as being theirs. It's other people's. You know, we build beautiful buildings for other people. We build edifices for other people. When it's for poor, for poor people, what do we do? We put a couple of blocks on the on the ground. We build it up. We knock out something to make windows. And the bare minimum, if you've ever been to a public school recently, you know this to be true. The bare minimum says that's good enough. It meets all of our requirements and our needs, and that's fine. And what I decided was that, you know, the environment in which we learn, the environment in which we partake not just of the arts, but of everything we do, the, the kind of value that the building says about the people who are allowed to be here and come here sh should be important. That, you know, not having it be important was actually as much a detriment as anything else. I mean, I could have, you know, suggested to my board that we build a much cheaper place, that we build something that was just utilitarian, that had nothing there. But I wanted my children to dream about what their futures could be. And whether that includes music or not really wasn't important. Um, What's important is is that they have vision, 
Um, you know, people talk about children being futures. Well, they're not. Children are now. Okay? You don't, you know, when we make changes, we always talk about the future. Well, I, I don't need the future. I need to make change that happens right now. My kids' future isn't something they think about. They think about today. And so I decided that every child that came here should be inspired by the fact that this building is built for them, that it's beautiful, that it's it, it functions and does really well functionally, but that these kinds of buildings and these kinds of edifices and this kind of thought about the future for themselves should be their thoughts, not some other child's thoughts, not the private school child's thought, not the wealthy parent's child, and certainly not people who can afford to go to the symphony or to the museum or other places where they're usually taken as guests. Every child in school usually gets taken. You get on the bus, you go down to the big symphony hall or to the museum or to the theater, and you go in and you're a guest for the day, right? And then they put you back on the bus and they send you right back to your school, which isn't very glamorous and isn't very nice and lots of times is inadequate. And I said, that's that only reinforces that feeling of it's not really for me. I'm only a guest there. Um, my name's not going to be on the wall of one of those people who's been a patron who's put money into it. So I'm always just going to be a guest. So I convinced my board of directors and my friends in town that we needed to build something of significance, that it needed to be a place that children would want to be, that when they were here, I would prove by the building of this building that they would take care of it, that it would mean something to them, that you wouldn't find graffiti, that the rooms would be well cared for, that it, that everything we did, that their stature would be elevated because the building and the environment has something to do with it, and that their self-worth would go up, not because they felt like they had more self-esteem, but because we were showing our faith in them and their abilities and what they represented. Um, and so um, it was really important to me that we give them a building that I thought was fitting. I was lucky enough to uh, be kind of crazy in that and my vision was well enough received by uh, a few influential people as to get a couple of very large donations on the front end and then it took me about seven years to to collect the rest of the funds to make it in reality and in fact this building was in was in the embryo stage for about eight years mm. uh, between purchasing the property that we actually are sitting in to the actual unveiling of the new facility it took took almost the whole decade of the 2000s um, but um, I really still feel that way to this day, that when a child comes here and they sit in my facility and they're looking around and they realize, no, it's, this is your place, this is your home, that it, it changes completely how they feel. Um, when you walked in, the gentleman who helps me with janitorial was cleaning my facility. Um, again, clean, beautiful, a place that elevates them, a place that says you have worth not because they feel it, but because other people say they have worth. And, you know, we say that kind of thing to kids all the time. Oh, you know, we value your opinion. We ask them what they feel, blah, blah, blah. You know, and it, a lot of it just ends up being, you know, wanting to make us feel better about how we treat children. And I wanted to create a building where they would feel better about themselves and how we felt about them by, by showing it. And I, I think it do- I really think it does. And since this building has existed, has it has it altered the way the community of Nashville perceives what the W.O. Smith School is doing? I don't think there's any question that it has. I think we were this nice little place before where a couple hundred kids would go and have lessons. Well, first of all, we've tripled in size. We went from having 70 or 80 teachers a year to having like 225 or 30. So even musicians are taking notice and saying, I want to be involved. But I also think they realize that um, there's a model here. There's something that you can grasp onto that we think um, culturally has an impact on kids. Uh, we have a, 
a, a very fine record of what happens to the students who go to school here. Um, in our local school district, depending on which years you look at the numbers and everything, we've, we've had everything from, you know, 50% graduation rates to 70% graduation rates. And that's pretty typical across the country. In fact, you know, um, that's better than some and a lot worse than others. Uh, at W. Smith, every child that's come here for the last 13 years, at least, has graduated from high school. Now, we're not solely to, uh, to give a claim to for that. I mean, first of all, parents and children are choosing to come here, so we're a choice. They're not being forced to. You know, a child's making a commitment. There's a lot of things involved with why a child succeeds, and a parent or a child getting involved here in the first place has to be given a lot of uh, credit. But we also know that children who do come here seem to excel, and at least excel to the point where we know they're going to graduate. The next thing is, of all those children who have been seniors in high school, all except three of them have gone on to a four-year or a two-year college, which that rate is completely out of the you know, range of what happens to most high school students. And of those three, two of them went into the military. So it wasn't as if their lives were meaningless. And, you know, now granted, they may have not completed degrees, and I we have very little control what happens after they've left our premises. But, you know, we're leaving them here prepared to go on to the next phase of life. And we know that it's not just the piano that they're playing or the clarinet or the trumpet or the violin. It's also this relationship that they're building with their peers here, the responsibilities that they're being told that they have when they come here because they are being held responsible for their work here. They get tested twice a year. They're constantly not only being you know, assessed by the volunteers and the staff, but they do self-assessments to say that, am I following through on what I'm supposed to? And then on top of it, they have this incredible relationship with adults adults who care about them, who spend time with them every week, and they know that the person's not being remunerated. They know that that person's there solely to teach them because they want to. And that changes your perception of people pretty quickly. Um, So we think that the combination of all that has really just elevated and that this place has gone far beyond even what some ways we thought it could. Um, And now because we're so visible and the building is so beautiful, we have a lot of other people who, who want to be here and be involved in it, and we think that can only be uh, for the best for kids. Um, I wish we could take all the kids who want to come here, but, you know, that, that's, a, that's another story for another day. Sure. I just have a couple more uh, questions. One is a practical question. I, I've, this is my first time ever in Nashville this week, and yeah. it's incredibly spread out, and it has next oh, to no public transportation. Absolutely. How do kids even get here? It's difficult. It's our single biggest problem. Um, so basically they, they have to get here on their own. I mean, there's almost no way because of the size of this county for there to be any sort of way to provide transportation to every part of the county to get here. So there's a couple of solutions that we've employed and some that we've tried that haven't worked very well. Uh, One is we do have some vans, and if we have a number of students who go to one particular school, and it's reasonable distance, meaning it doesn't take us an hour to get there, an hour to get back, we will send one of our vans to go to that school if there's four or five, six kids who can all come on the same day at the same time. We'll ask the parents to pick them up, and actually that's strategic. It's not because we couldn't take them home. It's that we want parents involved in their child's education, or if not a parent, some sort of guardian, grandmother, aunt, somebody who's going to care about the child. So we require all of the children to get picked up. And again, it's not that we couldn't take them home. It's that we really prefer not to because we think parental involvement is, is, is paramount. So we do that. We, we help children to carpool with each other and families and meet each other, those who live in the same areas of town. And, and we do some transportation. Um, I think probably if you were to ask um, every community organization in this city, 
not just arts organization, but all of them, and probably across the country, except for large cities that have extensive public transportation systems, that you'll find it is the single biggest problem for children in the after-school hours. I also know for a fact that if you were to go and talk to people within law enforcement, that you'll see that the spike in crime that happens when children are out of school, between the time they get out of school to the time their parents get home or their guardians get home, that the petty crime rate and other crimes skyrocket in those three or four hours. And we all have to do a much better job at trying to figure out how to do, provide education. One of the solutions is to open up neighborhood-based programs. We've tried that. We've gone that route. I think if, we were, if our students were paying customers and our teachers were being paid, it would work out pretty well. But one of the reasons we've been so successful is because we don't just provide you know, opening the door, the two of them, because there's a financial relationship, come in and do their job, and then they leave. Our, what we do with our students and with our teachers is much more involved. And so opening up satellites means really hiring highly trained, highly skilled people and opening up not just satellites, but really many schools in every place. And it's so expensively prohibitive to do that that we've not had luck with it. Again, if if it was a financial arrangement, I think we'd have better luck, but that's not something that we're prepared to do and we're not paying teachers. Um, so um, the staff here, and there's only four of us who actually work at this facility, but the four of us are so integral into how the volunteers function, how the students function, how we relate to their parents, and all the other things that go along with working with children of this type that we just don't think it can be replicated in, in, a, in a good way. And we've tried and, quite frankly, failed. And so we're, we're centrally located. The one good thing I can say is that we are pretty much equidistant to most parts of our county, and that's where we draw students from. It's about 137 schools in our school district, and we had 93 schools that had a child here last year. So we are finding that people can get here. But if there's one thing that we could change, yeah, I'd hire a team of buses. Uh, it'd be great, or some other sort of transportation system, but it's just prohibitively expensive. But I kind of want to see if we can, at the end, just get you to tell me some moment where you, you know, you went home that night thinking, man, this is exactly right now where I want to be in the world, and uh, you know, some something that kind of reached beyond just the obvious kind of visible success of the school to something yeah. that. Well, um, I have, I have, I hate to say it, but I have favorites of my students and my <laughs> teachers. I mean, we all do. Sure. Um, and we, we're very lucky in that we often have our graduates come back to see us. Um, and there's one in particular who I saw not too long ago. She's a young lady who um, I think has a quite successful life. She's probably about to turn 30, and I probably knew her back when she was starting in her early teens. I started to know her. Um, hadn't seen her in a long time, and she was here for a function. She decided to come to the school. We had a picnic for all of our students and our alumni. Um, and this is just the most recent one I can think of. And I haven't seen this young lady probably in almost 10 years. And so she went to the old school. To she the went school to the old school. Never right. been to this one. It's her first time. She has a little girl of her own. And again, you know, she's doing quite well. She has a good job. She owns a home. And um, I would not say that at that time when she left this school that I left on the best terms with this young lady. You know, we are strict. There's things that we allow and things we don't. And I won't say she walked the edge, but she, she probably walked close. And she was a difficult teenager, as most teenagers are. Um, and she came up to me about two, three weeks ago on a Saturday when we're having, you know, we're eating fried chicken and hanging out and everybody's having a good time. And, and we're just having basically an open house for our family uh, here at the school. And um, gave me the biggest hug and gave me a big kiss. 
and couldn't wait to show me pictures of her child and tell me about how successful her life is and how good she is and how well she's doing. And we didn't even need to say it, but she was basically coming to, to show me that she really felt like her years that she was with us were completely formative on how she's ended up. And she just started to cry. And we didn't, you know, we didn't, ex- you know, implicitly say it, but it was just really obvious by the hug she gave me that though I was a person she probably hadn't seen in almost a decade, um, that it, it mattered to her that much to be back here with us and sharing in her success of how her life has gone. And to me, you know, every time that happens, even though she doesn't play music any longer, when somebody like that comes to me and that happens, uh, I don't have any trouble coming to work the next day. I don't have any trouble doing all the bean counter work I do. I don't have any trouble worrying about the toilets that don't flush. I don't have any trouble having vision when that's what I get in return. And, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of music teachers would look at the one, the child who's been the most successful musically. Well, to me, that's great. But, I mean, this is, this is a great person. She's grown up well. And now that she reflects back on it, she's seeing that what happened here in the relationships she formed not just with me, but with her teachers and the people that were here, were really important and that they had a great effect on the remainder of her life. And as far as I'm concerned, every time that happens, I've, I've done a good job and um, it makes me ready for the next day. Well, I'm so glad that as a result of hanging out with Jeff Coffin yesterday that I learned about this place. My guest is Jonah Rabinowitz. He's the executive director of the W.O. Smith School. And I think what you're doing is is truly amazing. And I, I'm really well, glad that you're I always here. tell my folks, if we're not having fun, we're doing something wrong. Because <laughs> if you're going to have to work for a living, this is a pretty great place to work. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's really amazing to talk it's to you. my pleasure. That's the story of the W.O. Smith School in Nashville, Tennessee. My thanks to Jeff Coffin and Evan Cobb for hipping me to the school and uh, helping set up that interview. This is the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi. Please do become a member of the show at thejazzsession.com slash join or support the tour at thejazzsession.com slash tour. The tour starts on Labor Day weekend in Detroit, goes through the Midwest, out to the Rocky Mountain states, out to the Pacific Northwest, down the West Coast, into the Southwest. And I need places to stay, people to interview, and places to read poetry that entire way. So if uh, you think you can help with any piece of that, contact me at jason at thejazzsession.com. Meanwhile, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.